So if someone is struggling with their hearing aids that are well fit, then a referral needs to be timely. It needs to be really timely for them to have the best opportunity to do really well with a cochlear implant. Welcome to the Hear Me Out podcast. Thank you for tuning in to episode 16 of the show. Today we're joined by Emma Ramsey, the Director of Clinical Affairs at Cochlear ANZ. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Emma. You're welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure. So, um, you've been working in the audiology industry for 15 over years now and been with Cochlear for about 12. Um, I'd just love to hear your story of how you got into the industry, how you got into studying audiology and yeah, how you got into the position you are today. Sure. So um, I originally studied speech pathology at Sydney Uni and I guess I got into wanting to study speech pathology because I had a real um, passion for working with kids you know, as a young kid, I used to love babysitting, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll go and do speech pathology. That'll be good. looks like, you know, fun playing with kids and teaching them speech and language. Um, the course was a challenge for me. I probably didn't realise how heavy the science mm. was. Science wasn't really my strong strength. It was more um, around, you know, English and drama and things like that. So it was pretty heavy the first few years. But at the end of speech pathology... I really wasn't sure which way I wanted to go. There were so many different areas that you can go into. I mean, there's children and adults and head injury and stuttering and speech and language issues. And I felt a bit lost, I guess. And um, in the final year of speech pathology, I went and did an advanced course titled Auditory Verbal Therapy. And I'd never heard of it before. And I learned all about this amazing technique of teaching children with hearing loss how to speak. And it was being run at a cochlear implant clinic, which was then called the Children's Cochlear Implant Clinic in Gladesville. And I was just absolutely blown away, just totally uh, inspired. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So at the end of the course, I went up to the people who were running the course and they're both still working in the industry and have been incredibly influential in my career as an audiologist. And I was like, how do I get to do this? And they suggested that if I could be, you know, if I wanted to do another two years at uni, I could go and study audiology. So I guess the difference for me starting audiology at Macquarie was I was there specifically because I wanted to work in cochlear implants. Okay. So, yeah, I was really the only one then and we're going back <laughs> 20 years. I was the only one in the year then that really was there to do cochlear implants and there weren't a lot of pracs at the time that you could go and do your hours at cochlear implant clinics or anything like that because it still wasn't that mainstreamed yep. for peds anyway pediatrics so I guess that's what got me there and I've had an amazing career so far that I've just loved in um, audiology and in cochlear implants and I worked um, at the Sydney Cochlear Implant Centre as soon as I left uni which was amazing I got my dream job straight out of uni but a different um, pathway from those who started Australian hearing or hearing Australia um, I guess a lot of my peers are also mainly looking into getting in, into hearing aids or some of them are looking into getting into ped pediatrics at hospitals or things like that um, not that many are too interested in cochlear implants even 20 years later yeah, and I think, look, 
being young and so interested in cochlear implants, I probably didn't see the value of doing that year in general audiology. I did it later when I moved to the UK. I got some general audiology experience um, in London. I mean, I worked mainly on a cochlear implant program there, but I got a lot more general audiology that I hadn't really got because I went straight into cochlear implants, which was really exciting for me and um, has led me to where I am today. But it, it took a few years before I got that more general audiology base um, when I worked in the UK. So then I moved home um, and went back to the Sydney Cochlear Implant Centre. And then not long after that, an opportunity came up in a training role at Cochlear. And um, I guess I still had itchy feet from living overseas and traveling all the time. And I thought, oh, this sounds like a fun job. And it, it was a, quite an amazing role working in Asia Pacific and traveling to all parts of Asia. I mean, I had the, I was lucky enough to travel to places like Kyoto in Japan to support a switch on or remote areas of India. And you see a really different side of things and what an impact, um, you know, a whole community raising money for a child to have a cochlear implant and what an what a impact that's going to have on that child's life for the rest of their life. So I've had um, an in some interesting roles at Cochlear and then more recently, as you mentioned, I've joined the Australian New Zealand team. So that's been really nice too, to get back into sort of Australian audiology because I was really working all through Asia Pacific for the last sort of 10 years and in ANZ for the last two. Yeah. Do you see a similar trend across Asia Pacific that not many audiologists, well, well I guess the number of audiologists are quite a bit less in Asia, in, the, um, in Asia. Um, do you see more people interested in cochlear implant, more audiologists interested in cochlear implants, or is that quite similar over here? Um, look, I think it's the same problem on a bigger scale. So lack of awareness is a huge problem um, throughout Asia Pacific. Um, and of course, in some countries in Asia, audiology actually isn't a recognized profession or, or there's no university. So Japan, speech pathologists tend to work in roles of audiologists. And in China, it varies different healthcare professionals. Sometimes it's ENTs. Um, so uh, awareness is still a problem, but they've got a bigger problem. We have like, we're so well set up with audiologists and the strength in the training here and the expertise, we're like really well set, whereas other countries are quite behind with that. So um, awareness is an even bigger problem, I would say. Yeah, I guess Australia with um, the, co the cochlear implant being built here, invented here, and a lot of the major, with like, and with NEL producing a lot of the research that goes behind hearing aids, I guess this really has a really, really strong foundation um, compared to the rest of the world, even like compared to other countries like the UK or the US, we still have quite a good foundation. Yeah, look, I mean, look, you know, a lot of um, developed countries do really well with um, hearing aids and cochlear implants, particularly with paediatrics. Um, there's a real gap or um, sort of divide in terms of awareness for adults and, and we can talk about that but um, a lot of other countries are well set up with audiology it just comes down to um, 
access and um, I guess, yeah, audiologists that are trained in providing cochlear implant services or wanting to provide cochlear implant services. Yeah, so let's go into what is cochlear implant and who is it appropriate for? Like you were mentioning before, um, a lot of people think it's just for kids and um, a lot of audiologists like to recommend it for kids um, because that's where we see um, or that's where we perceive the most change, like you are truly allowing a child to learn language. Um, yeah, who is it for and... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, I guess um, my career, I started out, as I mentioned, as a real passion piece for children. That's what I wanted to work with. And um, you think about all the media that you see for cochlear implants, right? It's all amazing YouTube videos of children hearing for the first time or telling their mum that they love them and just that raw emotion. And I've been there. I've switched on many kids and it, it it's everyone is every single switch on is emotional um and i think because the media um you know like having those sorts of videos with young kids then sometimes the adult population that it can make just as big um, a change in their life certainly in terms of quality of life um and their hearing get sort of sidelined or or, or put to the side because there's a misconception that cochlear implants are just for kids or oh no I can't refer that person for a cochlear implant or I can't have a cochlear implant I'm too old like they're for kids but the funny thing is that that in Australia they started with adults I mean the the very first cochlear implant in 1978 was with an adult so um, but then quickly when they just provided way more benefit than anyone ever expected I mean people and initially researchers thought that it would help with lip reading and that would be about the extent of the benefit and now the goalposts just keep moving, right? So it was like help with lip reading. Then it was like here without lip reading. And then it's moved to things like now I want to be able to swim and I want to be able to do contact sport and I want to be able to do everything. I want to be able to interact on YouTube and FaceTime and stream and, and use all these things that the goalposts shift all mm. the time. So who are cochlear implants for? I mean, I think... In Australia, we do amazingly well because of the fantastic uh, newborn screening that's been supported by government that um, allows children to be picked up very early and streamlined into um, appropriate hearing aid fitting and testing for cochlear implants. And um, I think there's a study um, that's that looked at um, adoption rates for cochlear implants for kids in Australia, and it's something like 97%. Wow. So 97% of kids that need an implant in Australia get one, which is amazing. That's insane. Um, it's lower. Yeah. Um, the same study said it was about 50% for the US and about, even though there's funding, and about 65% for Germany. So we are doing incredibly well in the PED space. 97%. And you're looking... <laughs> yeah, of kids that need one, will get one. So we're doing really well with that, right? So the issue is that if we then take a look at adults in that, um, and I'll come to sort of uh, who we're looking for, but if you look at the adults that are appropriate for a cochlear implant, the estimations are that the adoption rates in Australia for those who could benefit from one are around 5%, mm. somewhere between 5 and 10%, which is hugely different to the children that are accessing it. Yeah, you were mentioning before that 
there are two kind of factors which play into that, which is the clinician's perspectives of cochlear implants that um, they aren't as functional and they would rather fit hearing aids and also that um, older adults also don't want the surgery or think that it won't really help them. Yes, yeah, so I think one of those those things we talked about is true. So there are a lot of barriers. So I don't think necessarily that clinicians or audiologists don't want to fit them. I think that there's been a general, um, until recently, lack of enough information around appropriate referral and candidacy. So, you know, if I think about when I studied 20 years ago, um, there, there was a very small amount, a couple of hours of cochlear implant content. And then if you were interested in cochlear implants, you had to go out and seek okay. that information out. Okay. Whereas now, um, you know, last week I watched the Trans-Tasman, some of the Trans-Tasman conference, and there's quite a lot of cochlear implant content. And so one of the barriers definitely around adults, I think, is ensuring that there's enough awareness amongst adults or or candidates for cochlear implants ones that perhaps aren't doing so well with their hearing aids that they know this is an intervention for mm. them um access so distance is a, still a real issue um when you, you know you mentioned not all not all audiologists fit cochlear implants a lot traditionally a lot of the cochlear implant clinics have been in cities mm. Um, and not everybody wants to travel hours and hours into a city, so that can be a real barrier. Um, and and I think making the education offerings, as I said, you know, if you started 20 years ago and you wanted to know about cochlear implants, you, you had to sort of seek the information out. But now um, it's making sure that the education is relevant yeah. and that all audiologists um, know when and how to refer and also how to talk about cochlear implants because there's a lot of questions that they get asked that maybe um, because they haven't had that experience, they don't know how to answer. I mean, you can answer what is a cochlear implant, but then the, the, the person in front of you in your office with their hearing aids might start saying things like, so can I swim? And how do I get my hair cut or dyed? And can I shower? And what do I do with it? And how does it charge? And um, can I travel overseas? What happens when I go through the security gates at the shopping centre? And it can become quite overwhelming to know all that information if you haven't worked with cochlear implants before. Yeah, it reminds me of um, some of the challenges people with tinnitus have when they go into audiology clinic or go into a GP clinic and they're like, oh, I've got this problem, I've got tinnitus, um, where do I go? And a lot of them, a lot of clinicians, if they haven't done the, the before research or they haven't, um if had the training most of them wouldn't really know how to refer or who to send them to or even the right information to give them yeah and and because it differs state to state I, and it's quite tricky the pathway i think it's conf it can be confusing for those who are wearing hearing aids and want to investigate, they're not sure. Do they talk to their audiologist about it? Do they talk to their GP about it? Do they need to see an ENT? Can they self-refer? Um, and same for the clinicians. So, okay, I understand that um, adults with severe to profound hearing loss or those that are struggling with their high-powered hearing aids or those that are, um, oh, we like to ask three questions. If, if with your well-fit hearing aids, you struggle on the phone, you struggle to hear children's voices or you struggle in background noise, you're likely 
to be suitable for a cochlear implant assessment. So let's say, you, you know, every audiologist knows that. The next thing is, where do I send them? <laughs> and what do I need to talk to them about? And how do I answer their questions about surgery, which is another barrier in a, um, a study really looking at sort of the barriers around cochlear implants are fear of surgery, fear of loss of residual hearing, access, and not knowing where to go, um, some of the stigmas, those sorts of things. So uh, it, it it's, can be perceived as complex. And I think, you know, as an industry and um, manufacturers as well are trying to ensure that that pathway is, is made more seamless. Mm. It shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, and from what we've been talking about for the past week, I don't think it's that hard. I think with more wide, widespread education, like what you were saying through the Trans-Tasman um, conferences and more professional bodies putting out information and um, guidance for audiologists, um, I think we can truly be providing the right care for our clients because I think that's at the end of the day, that's what's really important, that we're able to provide as many options for our clients and make sure that those options fit their needs. That's right. And like, you know, as I mentioned, adults have been having cochlear implants in Australia for 30 plus years now. So it's not brand new. Um, the cost effectiveness has been proven. The outcomes have been proven. Um, so there's some disconnect somewhere and i think it's there's i mean there's a number of reasons but between why you know 97 percent of children who need a cochlear implant in australia get one and only five to ten in australia uh, sorry adults in australia receive one so it's nutting through all of the com um, complexities of of that yeah so let's go into that a bit more um what are some of the major myths and misconceptions like can you go into the shower with them can you swim with them um what we say are the top five um major things that an audiologist needs to know when they're consulting with somebody who is a possible cochlear implant candidate sure so i think that one of the first one is is it brain surgery so obviously the ear is very close and there's a lot of nervousness around it being um, brain surgery. And what a lot of people don't realise now is it's a two to three hour procedure. It's 23 hours in, in overnight, like it's an overnight surgery. Um, sorry, overnight stay in hospital. Um, people are generally back at work within a week. Um, often over-the-counter medication is enough for any kind of pain afterwards. And quite often now you'll see that the device is switched on within like a mm. week, sometimes next day, but within a week or two. So um, I think that's the kind of information around whether it's brain surgery or not, or how long the surgery is and how long they're going to need to stay in and, um, hospital and for. And what's the rehab timeline like for an average adult client? So it varies, it varies mm. a lot, right? So what we know is that the earlier it's the same principles for kids principles for kids as it is for adults the earlier you get a cochlear implant if you need one the better you're going to do so the same with and we know aids. from some studies people exactly exactly right so if someone is struggling with their hearing aids that are well fit then a referral is 
needs to be timely. It needs to be really timely for them to have the best opportunity to do really well with a cochlear implant. So just remembering that principle. And I think the other myth is around for some people wearing hearing aids, oh, if I go to a cochlear implant clinic and have an assessment, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to have a surgery. Whereas I think just, you know, maybe being able to explain it's it's a process, right? And you can go along, have a chat, have an assessment and see if it is right for you. And it's not going to be right for everyone. You know, there are um, some people who will decide that they want to continue with their hearing aids and that's entirely um, their decision. It's their health, um, their hearing, but they need to be given the opportunity to investigate what might give them better access to hearing. Um, some of the other myths are um, around residual hearing, that they'll lose all their residual hearing. So, um, look, in the past when people were implanted that were only profound, okay. they didn't have a lot to lose. But people with more and more hearing are being implanted with better and better mm. results. And a lot has changed in the technology and the surgical um, technique. So that hearing preservation can be or is can be a reality. So um, there is a device that we, um, you, that Cochlear have that allows you to combine a hearing aid and a cochlear implant to make use of any preserved residual hearing. But I also think sometimes it's around counselling. I get it. I've worked with these these kind of adults, right? They're, they're just hanging on to that last bit of hearing because they're so reliant on it and they're so worried about losing it. But giving them the opportunity to talk to probably someone who's, who's working in cochlear implants around what benefit they mm. might get. Um, swimming, absolutely definitely can swim we've got uh, we've got um aqua accessories that mean that kids can swim and um use things like mini mics so they can hear their teacher um in the pool um a haircut absolutely no problems haircut hair dyeing <laughs> going through airport security those sorts of things so um i think they're probably the main ones and i think a big myth is cost I can't afford a cochlear implant. So um, we're really lucky in Australia that there's um, state and um, federal funding for cochlear implants, as well as like Veterans Affairs. Mm. Um, look, there are restrictions on amount, you know, the amount of funding. So which means that depending on what state you're in, you might um, waiting lists are a rea can be a reality. So, for example, you may not wait at all if you're in Victoria, but um, you might wait a year or a couple of years if you're in South Australia okay. So, for public funding. Mm. But then also something a lot of people don't realise is um, that private health insurance will also cover okay. cochlear implants. Mm. So um, I think myths around cost, I couldn't possibly afford that, is, um, is another myth, yeah. So... This is one question I I just came up with. Um, so, like hearing with, with hearing aids, there are different levels of hearing aids, and there you have to upgrade them every six to five to six years. Um, yep. What is that like for the for people with cochlear implants as technology improves? Do they need to get another surgery? Do they just put a different a different device on the on top of everything? Yeah, so um, the answer to that question is the technology improve. Whilst there have been some technology improvements for the internal piece, the implant itself, 
the technology improvements haven't been so great that it means someone who had an implant 20 years ago has that explanted and has the new one put in. Um, the, the great thing about Cochlear's external sound processors is we always endeavor to make them backwards compatible. So for example, you know, someone who had their implant 20 or 30 years ago can access the latest technology. And so um, that's what we're always working on, ensuring that they can upgrade the external to access the better technology. And things have changed a lot. I mean, when I was switching on babies 16, 17 years ago, I mean, it was a box that they wore on their back and trying to get home in the car seat with that on was, you know, <laughs> impossible. Or adults wore it on their belt or all different types of creative places that they found to, to hold the box processor. But now they're so small and, and the two offerings um, that we generally have is a behind the ear. Um, so it looks very much like a hearing aid, except of course it has the coil piece. Yep. Um, that's the transmitting coil. It means that that's how the information gets to the implant through RF um, into the implant. And we also have a completely off the ear processor, which is new for us, um, newish. I mean, it's been a few years, but it's interesting, right? Because um, traditionally hearing aids have always had, you know, the ear hook and been over the ear and that's just the way things are, right? If you want a hearing aid, <laughs> you have to wear something over your yeah. ear. If you want a cochlear implant, you have to wear something over your ear. But um, the off the ear Canzo is one that doesn't have an ear hook. So it just sits um, sort of, you know, back here with no ear hook. And surprisingly, because I think um, people that are so close to the technology are like, oh, what's an ear hook? Like, that's nothing if they're going to get hearing. But the amount of people that are like, I can now wear the glasses. I always wanted to wear because obviously the real estate behind the ear is quite small. And so they could only buy certain glasses or they hated the way they looked with mm. the ear hook. Little things like that just meant that aesthetically, some people go for the completely off the ear and others go for the traditional over the ear um, look. And I would say, you know, cochlear implant sound processes have really caught up with hearing aid technology in the last five or so years. So um, we have direct streaming, we have all the wireless accessories. As I said, you can swim. Um, so technology has really come a long way in the cochlear implant space. Yeah, that's really interesting. You were saying about ear real estate. <laughs> it's something. Yeah, something well, you don't think about it if you don't have to deal with it. It's something only us in the audiology industry ever thinks about. Like that's such a no. nuanced. Um, nuanced word it was funny i was watching i was looking at a hearing aid forum and somebody was saying how do i put on my mask my hearing aids and my glasses all together and it's like yeah they're really struggling at the moment yeah well add a mask to it then you're really stuck so um yeah so different people go for different styles like i'd say the people that are really your heavy duty users that want all the um you know Apple, I've you know compatibility, the streaming, um, all the extra bells and whistles. We'll go for a, what we call our Nucleus Seven, and um, the ones that you know just probably want it to be a little more discreet and and are not so worried about direct streaming and things like that. We'll go for the off. So very similar options towards um, between like IICs versus BTEs, that kind of conversation. Yeah. Yes, except that they both will fit the same range like yeah. they'll both 
um, yeah, so their speech perception is likely to be exactly the same regardless of the processor. It's just what your added benefits, you know, your added um, features will be, whether you want to stream phone calls directly from your phone and those sorts of things. <laughs> you were saying that um, individuals who's, who have had cochlear implant surgery 20, 30 years ago are still able to clip on a new one um, and utilize the same connections or maybe, um, yeah. Is there any, yeah, is there any limitations with creating a technology which is backwards compatible so long? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to speak for the engineers because <laughs> it's not my, um, <laughs> my strength, but I'm telling you it's a big commitment from Cochlear um, around that because leaving... Um, the users of our product in the dark with older technology is just not something that we um, live and breathe by. And so it takes an awful lot of um, engineering, engineering, R&D, you know, R&D um, uh, money <laughs> to be able to research and put it put back into R&D. We put a lot back into R&D. And I think the commitment, the commitment that we want those people that were implanted that long ago to be able to access new technology because they should be able to. Yeah, I asked the question because I'm a PC builder, so I like to build oh, PCs. You have lots of talents. <laughs> so yeah, I was asking that question because in the PC world, you have a motherboard and you have a CPU. The CPU and the motherboard and CPUs only last two, two or three generations, which is two to three years. And you can only upgrade your CPUs two or three times um, for the next two or three generations before they're obsolete. The motherboards don't work with them anymore. Yep. And I was wondering, yeah, it must take a lot of resources and a lot of development to make sure that you're enabling the most features for the new clients, but also be backwards compatible with the old clients as well. Right. And, and look, without going into like huge technicality, the things that are really troublesome when they're developing things like that is battery life because the way that the power is run on those older devices and the current is, is quite different to more to the modern cochlear implants um, or newer cochlear implants. So th the answer to your question, there is a lot of engineering oomph required, <laughs> but it's, it's a real, it's a real commitment. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's a real, um, really reassuring for both audiologists and um, clients who are looking at getting a cochlear implant that they won't be left in the dark and they won't just yep. all of a sudden you have to get another surgery to take it out and put a new one in and all of that that's right yep yep no the the the, the plan is that you should not um need to change the inside that you'll just be able to keep upgrading on the outside to access better technology yeah i'd love to find out a bit more about um the hybrid model about um having a hearing aid and a cochlear implant what's what's yeah about? so it's just just so sure it's um it's it's for those patients who have more residual hearing to begin with particularly in the low frequency and that maintain that hearing with surgery as i said there's a lot of um, surgical techniques these days that mean that hearing preservation can be a reality and so if the hearing is preserved and they've got usable hearing in the low frequencies then we all know that's going to help with um, background noise going to help with music appreciation and so any of our n7 processes can be converted into hybrid hearing so 
with COVID-19 and um, a lot of lockdowns happening across the world, um, a lot of audiologists are moving to teleaudiology and being forced to um, adopt new techniques and new systems to enable more accessibility for our clients and patients. You were mentioning that um, that's another issue that people also have with cochlear implants, that there aren't many clinics or that 20 years ago, there weren't many clinics around. I guess there's a lot more nowadays. Um, but how are, how is Cochlear and other companies working to enable audiologists to provide remote care? Sure. So look, um, I've seen some amazingly innovative um, techniques over this COVID period of audiologists coming up with fantastic and yeah, innovative ways to treat their patients, whether that's remotely programming them, um, dropping off tablets to their house and programming them for their driveway, touching base with them on Zoom, those sorts of things. But um, so I think in general, there's a real desire to be able to provide um, telehealth to their to their patients or clients, but I'm not sure the environment has always been that easy. Um, the tyranny of distance obviously is a big issue. As I mentioned, cochlear implant clinics traditionally have been in big cities and we're starting to see that change with access in rural area, better access in rural areas. But also I would say manufacturers haven't always made it that easy. Um, so the environment um, can, can be but can be tricky. But I think with cochlear implants, we're starting to see, I mean, with our collaboration with Apple and direct streaming, um, being able to stream content um, and maybe test an audiogram through the phone or speech testing through the phone will mean that things will be getting easier. But yeah, I think the environment, also the lack of um, reimbursement for the services. So it's kind of like there's this real desire by audiologists to provide telehealth, but then it's how are they going to charge? Are they going to charge for it? Are they going to wear the like? How do they make the model work? Even if they're particularly particularly innovative and wanting to find ways to provide um, telehealth. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with a lot of funding coming from places like the HSP and um, other organisations, government. Um, yeah, things like that. Um, I guess there's a lot of regulations behind that. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think the government's done an amazing job of, you know, I was able to do a telehealth GP appointment recently. And um, I know my mum, who has a lot of specialists, did her specialist appointment remotely and was bulk billed. But I think we've got a way to go to make the environment for audiologists in terms of providing telehealth. Um, there's a role for all of us to play in trying to um, advocate for the need for that whether that's with collaborating with you know and there is a there's a lot of collaboration going on with various organization organizations um and audiology australia and government to ensure that telehealth can be um, provided to audiologists because it's we believe it's safe effective particularly needed at this sort of moment um in time and so hopefully we'll start to see things improve yeah i think audiologists are really are really <laughs> Um, have a lot of ingenuity and I think it's really amazing to see how we're going to be progressing after this COVID-19 season. Um, I was talking with Colleen Pissaras, the um, Director of Hearing Implants Australia, and she was saying that um, she started bingo sessions for clients and it's super exciting to see that um, audiologists are not only trying to um, train um, their 
clients on how to get hearing aids and cochlear implants running in the appointments but they're also trying yeah. to integrate oh how do you better do zoom calls how do you do better do webinars and how do you better integrate all this new technology into your life without having it um impede um your functions yeah yeah and i think look audiologists ultimately love to communicate i mean <laughs> that's the number one reason most of us got into it like we like people we like to communicate and so if something like COVID-19 comes about, it's not going to stop us from finding ways to connect with our clients and our patients. It just means that we've got to find innovative ways, but the environment at the moment with funding and that sort of thing makes it challenging. Yeah. So just to finish out off, um, what are some of the red flags audiologists should be looking out for, um, for a cochlear implant referral? Sure. So, um, look, I would just really keep it in the back of your mind. An audiogram is not enough. Like we can't, an audiogram is a good start, right? If they're looking in that sort of severe to profound area, um, or even they have some good hearing in the low frequencies, but they're starting to drift off. Um, that's a start. That's a red flag, but audiogram alone is not enough because they may have a better audiogram, but they're struggling on speech testing. Um, and so uh, also quality of life so doing some sort of quality of life um, questionnaire and seeing how they are you know and, and and generally in the appointment if they're fit with um, high-powered aids or um you know they're really well fit you've done the best you can with the hearing aid fitting and they're still relying on loved ones in the appointment to help them to communicate or they're saying that they're starting to withdraw from activities that they enjoyed, um, then I would say um, you would need to consider a referral. Or if you were doing, say, AB words under headphones, that's 60 to 70% correct is another red flag, is a time that you need to be thinking, I, I might want to send them for an assessment. An assessment doesn't mean they're going to put an implant in tomorrow, but it means you've talked to them about other options that may give them a big improvement. Um, there was a study that showed um, some adults with severe profound hearing loss that moved from a hearing aid. I think they were getting 8% on um, uh, word scores moving to like 61% um, by moving to a cochlear implant. And so it's really looking out for the variety of red flags, trouble in noise, trouble on the phone, trouble with children's voices, or then some of those audiometric things that you can test for. Mm. So if a client comes in and with the audiogram, which would typically work very well and it's not working as well as it should, that should be an indicator that um, a cochlear implant could be a good option to enable them to re regain their quality of life and regain um, uh, that speech perception and all of that. Absolutely, because a lot of these people think there's no other option. I've got hearing aids, they're not working for me, and I've hit the end of the road. Um, and there's no option for me. And so really, I think it's a responsibility, like it's a responsibility of me to educate people that um, wearing their iPhone music way too loud, you know, uh, is damaging to hearing. And to all of my mum and dad's age group, you should go and get your hearing tested, even if you don't think you've got a hearing <laughs> loss. It's every audiologist's responsibility to make sure they know about cochlear implant um, candidacy and referral so that if they've got someone that's struggling with hearing aids they can talk to them about another option awesome 
thank you so much emma for your amazing passion and your amazing um love for what you do i can really see that um you truly want to enable clinicians to deliver the best results for their clients and ultimately to help to improve the quality of life for their clients what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned over these past 20 years in the industry and yeah oh wow uh that's a big question for the end of the interview <laughs> um look i think you know keep changing things up so me moving out of asia pacific into anz i'd gone from like this real passion for kids to now i like could bang on and talk about adults access to cochlear implants all day and night um so i think for me moving around even though like i've been at cochlear a long time i've moved into various roles i was even in marketing for a little bit um so i think keeping yourself fresh um and i think learning that um uh being able to talk about lots of different options. And as I mentioned, it's not going to be for everyone. Not everyone is going to want to have a cochlear implant. But if they don't know about it in the first place and they don't know there's a potential to improve their hearing, their quality of life, their connection with their loved ones, then I think that's an opportunity, a huge opportunity missed. And so many people we meet that have a cochlear implant say they wish they knew about it earlier. Mm. I think we're doing a real disservice if we're not giving them all the options on the table. And especially in Australia, since it is fully subsidized or is covered by private health insurance, I think it's something we really should be putting on the table. And I think, you know, we need to, those that work in cochlear implants need to also take, make sure we're creating educational offerings that are relevant and interesting and you know, when someone who works in hearing aids or works in diagnostics or works in something different sees the offering, they don't just scroll on, you know, like it seems like this is for me. And so we would always be keen on any feedback about what sort of information people would like to know or have extra training on. Beautiful. Great transition to where can people find you and where can people find the information um, and the educational content that you and Cochlear put out Sure. So um, uh, I can be contacted on my email address, which I'm quite happy to give yep. people, um, which is eramsey at cochlear.com. But also um, we've got a free information service, which is um, an amazing service for either people thinking about a cochlear implant or audiologists not sure where to refer someone or if someone might be suitable and how to get in contact with an audio, another audiologist that might be able to talk to them about that particular client. And so that is an email address, hearinghelp at cochlear.com. And all the information is on the Cochlear website. But I would just say, look out for the educational offerings. Audiology Australia are really well placed to be providing um, education on, on cochlear implants. There were some excellent sessions last week and I think there's some more this week as part of the Trans-Tasman. Um, I, I think you know, but also... Um, um, I'm on the board of Audiology Australia and so I know they're really well placed and there's plans to, um, they recognise that there's that disconnect between kids that are getting cochlear implants and adults and, and so um, making sure that we continue to have educational offerings so that um, awareness at least is no longer a barrier. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emma, for your time today. Um, thank you for um, dispelling some of the major myths for audiologists and for the general public. Um, I think cochlear implants are going to be a really um, important 
step in the future f to enable um, more more adults to regain that quality of life and regain the hearing that they really um, need to start socializing again and i love how that how both hearing aids and cochlear implants are starting to integrate more with phones and computers and all those devices so that i think they enable people to regain their life yeah hearing aids do when appropriately fit and cochlear implants do when they're fit you know appropriately as well and i think what's really going to be interesting to watch in the next sort of 10 years of my career is how do we make access better that's the area we really need to improve um, and, you know, um, awareness and access. So um, I think that's an area for you to watch this space.